Welcome to the end of the innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. My goal for this podcast is to touch on the details and facts of this case that our history books didn't tell us, or the Warren Commission either ignored or tried to sweep under the rug. Most people's version of the case is this. JFK was assassinated in Dallas. He was shot by Leah Harvey Oswald. Two days later, Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby. The Warren Commission concluded that Oswald did it alone. Case closed. The end. You might be surprised to know that a recent study shows that 88% of Americans believe that JFK was killed as a result of a conspiracy and that Oswald was not acting alone. So why is it the public start believing the government about JFK's murder? In today's episode, we're going to touch on that. We're also going to look at threats made against the president's life just a few weeks before the assassination. One such threat was in Chicago and another one in Miami. The media frenzy over the recent release of documents related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy highlights the public's fascination with JFK and his death all these years later. But do these documents add to our understanding of the assassination, the motives of the assassin, or the possibility of a conspiracy? The declassified materials are part of a debate that began with the 1964 Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, known as the Warren Commission. Established by President Lyndon Johnson one week after the assassination, it concluded, after nearly 10 months of investigation, that Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone, had fired three bullets from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. It also found that Oswald's death 48 hours later at the hands of a local nightclub owner, Jack Ruby, was an act of spontaneous revenge. It's hard to believe now, but the Warren Commission initially received a warm reception, and the public seemed willing to accept its conclusions. Before the release of the report, a Gallup poll found that only 29% of Americans thought Oswald acted alone, while 52% believed in some kind of conspiracy. But only a few months after the release of the Warren Report, 87% of Americans believed that Oswald shot the president. Over the next few years, however, critics turned public opinion against the Warren Report. In 1966, Mark Lane, who is considered a pioneer in the research community, released his bestseller, Rush to Judgment. Later that same year, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison launched a highly publicized but deeply flawed investigation into the death of President John F. Kennedy. It supposedly revealed a vast conspiracy. At the same time, Life Magazine published color reproductions of the Zapruder film, a graphic home movie of the shooting by local dressmaker Abraham Zapruder. Life Magazine titled this article, Did Oswald Act Alone? A Matter of Reasonable out. The editors questioned the commission's conclusions and called for a new investigation. Most of the early skeptics used the Warren Commission's own evidence against it. They focused on contradictions among some of the witnesses about the number of shots and where those shots came from. Some witnesses claimed they heard gunfire from the grassy knoll, an elevated area to the front and right of the presidential limousine. According to the Warren Commission, Oswald fired three shots in 8.6 seconds. The first shot missed the car completely and hit bystander James Tague. The second shot, the so-called magic bullet, struck President Kennedy in the back, exited through his throat, and then hit Texas Governor John Conley, breaking a rib, shattering his wrist, and ending up in his right thigh. Critics claim the bullet, which, by the way, remained largely intact, could not have been responsible for all the damage. And if Kennedy and Conley were hit by different bullets in a matter of seconds, then it meant there had to be another shooter. Because we all know that another shot struck President Kennedy in the head, killing him instantly. These criticisms really began to take their toll. By the early 70s, many Americans were skeptical of the commission and their conclusions. The most serious threat to the commission's credibility, however, came not from the army of investigative reporters, but from a new government investigation. In 1978, the House Select Committee on Assassination, after two years of work, concluded that Lee Oswald was the assassin, but there also was a conspiracy involving the second gunman. 
The committee relied on acoustical analysis of a dicta belt recording from the Dallas Police Headquarters. It contained sounds from a police motorcycle in Dealey Plaza whose radio transmitting switch was stuck in the on position. Two acoustic experts said that there was a 95% certainty that the recording revealed four shots that had been fired at the presidential motorcade. That recording that you just heard did force the House Select Committee on Assassinations to come to the conclusion that there was a second shooter in Dealey Plaza that day, and the evidence showed that the shooter shot from the grassy knoll area. Coming in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate, the House Select Committee's report just added to the cynicism about the Warren Commission conclusions. At just about the time the Americans learned that the government lied to them about Watergate and Vietnam, they are now discovering that it lied about the aspects of the Kennedy assassination. Now there were two conspiracies. The conspiracy to assassinate the president, and potentially an even larger conspiracy, the conspiracy to cover it up by powerful figures in the government. Before the 1970s, most conspiracy theories focused on the Russians or possibly the Cubans. By the 80s, polls showed that a large majority of Americans now believed that their own government was involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. A Newsweek poll taken in 1983 on the 20th anniversary of the assassinations showed that 74% of Americans believed that others were involved, while only 11% thought Oswald acted alone. In 1991, filmmaker Oliver Stone tapped into those doubts and added his own twist to create the powerful movie JFK. The film, which in my opinion got closer than our history books, portrayed an elaborate web of conspiracy involving President Johnson, the FBI, CIA, Pentagon, the KGB, Pro-Castro and Antro-Castro forces, defense contractors, and assorted other government officials and agencies. The movie ended with a plea for audience members to ask Congress to open all Kennedy assassination records. The plea worked. In 1992, Congress passed the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act that placed all remaining government documents pertaining to the assassination in a special category and loosened the normal classification guidelines. It set a 25-year deadline for the release of all documents relating to the assassination. That deadline was October 26, 2017. Believe it or not, there's still documents out there that have not been released. Over the next 25 years, the government fully released 88% of the materials related to the assassination and another 11% of partially redacted documents. Let's face it, there's been no shocking, earth-shattering revelations in these documents. Did we really think there would be? But there has been some important pieces of the puzzle thrown out there on the floor, and we just got to put the puzzle back together. The declassified documents have highlighted one major flaw with the Warren Commission. It's failure to present a convincing explanation for why Lee Harvey Oswald shot Jay. Much of the final commission's report represented an indictment of Oswald. It failed to show one single motive. All it did was make a strong case that Oswald was a disaffected sociopath in desperate need of attention. It's been a great deal of effort showing that the events in his childhood, like growing up with a father, making new friends, and dealing with an overbearing mother, had done nothing but mold him into an angry, embedded misfit. Many of the new documents and information present a different portrait of Oswald altogether. He was driven as much by ideology as he was by his personal demons. There's also information in these documents that prove that Oswald was not the lone nut that the Warren Commission claims he was. In the last few years, there's new information that's come out that suggests Lee Oswald was employed by the CIA, possibly. There's written proof that Oswald, while in the Marines, was given a Russian exam. The only reason that anyone in his position would be given a Russian exam was if they were going to do some work from U.S. intelligence. 
Oswald was obviously drawn into a scapegoat situation and made to believe he was going to penetrate the assassination. Then when the time came, they took the scapegoat, and with the help of the media, they turned him into a villain. In this podcast, I think we could show that Lee Oswald was totally innocent of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The fact that history, because of disinformation, has made a villain out of a young man who all he wanted to do was be a good American. Uh, in some ways, it may be the greatest injustice of all. I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I'll shoot the black guy. I'll shoot the black guy. I'll shoot the black guy. you shoot the president? I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Come on, man. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the building. I'm just a president. Were you aware there were two significant threats made against the president's life leading up to his assassination in Dallas? One such threat was in Chicago. Alan, since this fateful day in 1963, the JFK secret files have slowly been made public, but not all of them. 16,000 records remain unseen in the National Archives, even though they were supposed to be released in 2017. The I-Team has reported in recent years that President Kennedy was the target of several assassination plots, including two in Chicago, weeks before he was gunned down in Dallas. When President Kennedy was shot and killed in this Dallas motorcade, there were more than a half dozen active assassination threats known to the Secret Service at the time. Hit squad plans had been uncovered by authorities in Tampa, Florida, and in Miami a few days before the attack that did occur in Dallas, in which ex-U.S. military sharpshooter and Soviet sympathizer Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested. When that bullet struck the head of the president, it struck me too, because... I saw it coming. As the I-Team first revealed in 2007, this Secret Service agent from Chicago, Abraham Bolden, had tried to warn his supervisors about the brewing assassination threats, including a pair of plots that targeted JFK here in Chicago. Bolden, the first African-American agent assigned to a presidential protection detail, said Kennedy was due to attend the Army Air Force football game at Soldier Field on November 2nd. JFK's route from O'Hare to the Loop was publicized. JFK called off the trip at the last minute after two secret threats, one by a right-wing radical and Kennedy denouncer Thomas Valley, who was arrested with an M1 rifle and 3,000 rounds of ammo. And a second apparent plot exposed when a Chicago motel man Manager reported what she saw in a room rented by two Cuban nationals. Had seen lying on the bed several uh, automatic rifles with telescopic sights. Tonight, a lawsuit is asking National Archives officials to finally release the last 16,000 Kennedy assassination records, files that could finally unlock the remaining mysteries of JFK plots in Chicago and elsewhere that failed and the one in Dallas that didn't. There were a couple of curious coincidences about this incident in Chicago. The tip-off to the FBI about the assassination plot in Chicago came from an informant identified only as Lee. Hmm, Lee, huh? As further evidence of a high-level conspiracy to assassinate the president in Chicago, it's come to light that there was a plan A and a plan B, which is standard operating procedure for any well-planned covert operation. Uh, What was unusual is that the two plans were nearly identical though 925 miles and 20 days apart. 
Now we're going to talk about an incident that the FBI wish would just go away. A man named Joseph Miltier could be a key to the JFK assassination. On the morning of November 9, 1963, two weeks before JFK was assassinated in Dallas, right-wing extremist Joseph Miltier was in a Miami hotel room talking with Willie Somerset, who was an undercover police informant. Somerset happened to be wearing a wire. This conversation was turned over to the FBI immediately, although it would not surface publicly until four years later. Miami, Florida was the city visited by President Kennedy four days before his death in Dallas. It was also the unlikely location for a bizarre meeting 13 days before the assassination in which details of the plot to kill Kennedy were set out with stunning accuracy. A Miami police informant secretly taped a conversation with a visiting right-wing activist in his seedy downtown apartment. It is broadcast here for the first time. Somerset, a union organizer with extensive right-wing political ties, was the Miami police informant. Joseph Miltier was the wealthy, rabble-rousing racist from Quitman, Georgia. In charge of the surveillance operation was Miami detective Everett Kay. Well, we had to set up the tape recorder in Somerset's apartment in order to, uh, to make the recording where he met with uh, this other uh, man, uh, Miltier. In order to do so, uh, it was a very large tape recorder that was made especially for uh, intelligence work, weighing approximately 40 pounds. I carried it to the third floor of his apartment, uh, placed it in a closet, and then ran the microphone around the baseboard in the kitchen, and the microphone was uh, hidden by, by the chairs where Miltier and uh, Somerset were to have their meeting. came up that this man wanted to know how many people that President Kennedy had that was his look-alike that went with him. And our informant wanted to know why, and he said, well, there was plans to assassinate him. The further conversation on the tape revealed that uh, the assassination was to take place 
uh, from an office building with a high-powered rifle. There is no particular city mentioned, uh, nor was there any particular person mentioned that was to do the assassination. The tape was made on uh, November the 9th, and John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, was due in Miami on the 18th of November, 1963. So the close proximity of the tape being made and his visit uh, made quite a few changes in the security. They changed the motorcade, and uh, I believe that he was helicoptered, and rather than have a motorcade, uh, additional men were um, secured. Uh, uh, everyone was made aware that uh, that uh, there may be a problem, so there was a drastic change in the procedures. He wasn't as accessible in this city as he might have been in the past. job and was very grateful the fact that it did not happen in Miami. It could have very well happened in, in Miami, um, as it did in Dallas. So it, it touched it touched each of us uh, very, very closely, particularly myself, as hearing the words that they were going to assassinate President Kennedy. Miltier was interviewed by the FBI and then released. He perished in a mysterious house fire a few years later. The Warren Commission ignored the Miami connection and a further opportunity to determine the truth. Following the assassination, Somerset met with Miltier again. Miltier commented that things had gone exactly as he had predicted. Somerset asked Miltier if he actually had advanced knowledge of the assassination or he'd just been guessing. Miltier kind of chuckled and said, you figure that out. One more little nugget before we go this week. On November 17th, an FBI telex was sent to all special agents in charge. The telex said, It has been determined that a militant revolutionary group may attempt to assassinate President Kennedy on his proposed trip to Dallas, Texas, November 22nd and 23rd. This telex was sent to FBI offices all over the country and nothing was done. The motorcade went ahead as scheduled in Dallas. Shortly after the assassination, the telex was removed from all files in all the cities as an obvious embarrassment to the Bureau. This was never mentioned in the Warren Report. If this alone is an evidence of a cover-up, then I don't know what is. Next week on The End of the Innocence, the JFK assassination, we're gonna hear about a heated argument between President Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson on the morning of the assassination. Also, some strange occurrences at Love Field happened that morning. That really played a big part of what happened later that day in Dallas. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.